You're listening to a podcast on Catholic Saints. This podcast is produced by the Augustan Institute, an apostolate helping Catholics understand, live, and share their faith. Hello and welcome to Catholic Saints. Today we're going to be talking about a saint that St. John Paul II called a master of wisdom, a father in faith, teacher of the Christian life, and a great friend of the people. Today we're going to be talking about St. Alphonsus Liguori. My name is Dr. Ben Akers, and I work here at the Augustine Institute along with my colleague, Dr. Sean Inneris, a great professor in the Augustine Institute Graduate School of Theology. Thank you for joining me, Sean. Oh, you bet, Ben. It's great to be here. So Pope St. John Paul II, one of my favorite saints, it's always, I always love finding a saint, talk about another saint. <laughs> and the popes are great. They get canonized because they have usually uh, writings or, you know, nice audience on a saint. But this is high praise from Pope St. John Paul II, a master of wisdom, father in faith, teacher of the Christian life, and a great friend of the people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and uh, in some ways you can see they're kind of kindred spirits mm -hmm. because uh, Alphonsus was a moral theologian and uh, St. John Paul II was likewise you know, an important voice in the church on moral theology. Cleaned up a few messes. No, that's right, say. with his uh, very taught <laughs> Splendor, the great encyclical yeah, on, on moral theology. <clears throat> For our, you know, viewers, and, you know, you can always download this on podcasts. Maybe you're listening on podcasts. Uh, can you give us some historical context to where St. Alphonsus fits within the history of the church? Well, yeah, um, you know, in, in broad terms, uh, born 1696, died 91 years later, right? So at a ripe old age. That is an old age for yeah, that, for yeah. the 17th century. And yeah. uh, very much worn down by the years um, at the end. <clears throat> but uh, so he he's coming at uh, that critical period where, um, you know, the enlightenment hasn't entirely kicked in yet, mm -hmm. right? Some of the effects that that, you know, that has on the life of the church. Um, but in a period in which there are a lot of moral controversies around the issues of Jansenism, a kind of rigorous uh, approach to moral theology and pastoral practice, which he had to address, it actually began, um, it was condemned 40 years before he was born, in fact. But but it, it was still in popular piety well, and devotion. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and the thing is that, you know, the the, the folks that championed Jansenism sort of kept nuancing their positions to sort sort of, uh, sort of stay in the good graces of the church. And so it, it sort of lingers uh, beyond its pronouncement of death, you might say, right? Right. Um, the rumors of its death were Clearly. a little early. <laughs> so, so he had to do a lot of cleanup work and, uh, and is kind of uniquely situated in that point in the church's history where we were kind of aching for, you know, a, a beautiful moral summa, mm. and that's really what he delivered to the church, and is considered to be, you know, kind of a, a touchstone in moral theology up to the present day. Even though there's been so much development in, you know, theology across the life of the church and and across that discipline in moral theology, he's still considered to be the standard, you know, that everyone has to uh, refer to and engage. In. Yeah, and engage with. Yeah, because I think he's a patron saint of. Moral, moral theologians, theologians yeah. yeah. He was actually proclaimed to be the prince of moral oh, theologians. Wow. Yeah, not long after his death, um, uh, one of the popes declared him, I think it was 1831, to uh, be that point of reference to which any confessor uh, can make reference without having to question 
his arguments. So, so basically verifying his, his conclusions from his great summa of moral theology. Um, I, I'm not sure the church has ever said anything like that. I mean, St. Thomas, of course, sure. is, is dealt with with the same kind of reverence. <laughs> so he's the, the gold standard, <laughs> platinum standard yes, that, yes, that moral theologians have to... Yeah. In modern moral theology discussions, <clears throat> is that the case, you think? Do, um, do we see this lived out in the practice? Is it just <laughs> certain circles in the church or well, seminaries? Uh, as you're well aware. <laughs> <laughs> um, in theology today... Um, you know, the sources are often ignored, mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of um, creative yeah. thinking in theology today. And- uh, There was an air quote in the creative. For yeah, the, that, for those yeah, listening on podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and so sometimes the, the great touchstones and theological reflection are not touched. So that would be like the gospels. <laughs> the, the scriptures, right? Like this touchstones, these foundational pieces, the liturgy, right? Yes, the liturgy, yes, the lives of the saints, yes. how they lived out the virtues of faith, yeah. hope, and charity, and the yeah. cardinal the, virtues. The loci well. of theology. Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, so Alphonsus Liguori, I mean, he's still honored in name. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Alphonsianum in Rome. Yes, that's right. Is uh, named after him, only really founded in the 20th century, but, you know, indicating that his influence is lasted into that period. And, uh, and once again, he's still a touchstone. If you're, if you're writing a survey of, uh, you know, the history of the development of moral theolo theology, you've got you to reference him. One of the things that struck me when I was looking at his life was that he seemed to be brilliant. He came from a noble oh, yeah. family, so he was like a prince, I guess, yep. you know, kind of the, evoking that image. Um, very well-formed intellectually mm -hmm. and, and gifted. Uh, by, you know, in his late teenage years, he has a civil degree and a canon law degree. A doctorate. A doctorate. Sorry, yes, thank you. A yeah, doctorate. Double in both. doctorate. And was an incredible lawyer. Uh-huh. So, you know, hearing that, <laughs> and then he abandons it all to kind of like, yeah. the, the world showed its face to him and he wants mm -hmm. to turn his back on it. But that's interesting. Someone who's so legally formed does not become legalistic in his moral yeah. theology. Yeah. Um, there's a reason for that. And I think... Um, it's rooted in his own experience. So, you know, he was obviously very disciplined, as you've indicated, very bright, capable of understanding the full field and all the implications, um, you know, drawing from principles, applying those prudentially in the moral sphere. But he also suffered his whole life from scrupulosity. Hmm. And- What would be scrupulosity for someone who's listening well, who might not? Uh, Perhaps a simple and clinical way of describing it is uh, a kind of neurotic fear of sin. Mm -hmm. um, so a hypersensitivity to sin. And, uh, you know, we commonly treat it today as a kind of psychological malady, but, m you know, many of the saints suffered from it. And Liguri himself said that, um, that it can be very beneficial, actually, as a kind of um, opening stage which heightens your sensitivity, awareness of sin, its dangers, and that sort of thing. Apparently, he struggled with it throughout his life. Mm. So that was, you know, the thorn in the flesh that he had to bear. But that made him apt to uh, avoiding rigorism because he had to sort of fight against it in himself. Interesting, yeah. uh, and so that enabled him to be a great confessor, um, you know, always avoiding laxity, but not going so far as rigorism. And uh, so he's famous for, you know, um, 
representing the you know the the very stable middle of uh, moral evaluation. Do you think if someone struggled with scrupulosity today, they would benefit from his writings? They would. Say, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was there would there be something you'd recommend to well, start with? <laughs> the. The, what I've seen in his writing, because I know he's got I, he, the text, Glories of Mary, the yeah, moral theology text. Yeah, yeah. But then I've also seen like nice excerpts kind of cold from his writings, the yeah, of salvation. He wrote a huge number of books. And uh and you know, his devotional books are very are very good and readable. He was a he was a good preacher, very simple, down to earth. He wasn't high flown, he wasn't given to, you know, rhetorical heights. Um and uh, and that colored his whole ministry throughout his life. But, um, uh, you know, he had little manuals on uh, four confessors and on going to confession. I don't recall the titles mm -hmm. exactly. But he's got a number of works, um, perhaps, you know, 10 or so, uh, you know, Marian Devotion, uh, Life of Prayer, which are worth looking at and very accessible. Uh, you know, his his Summa and Moral Theology is is nine volumes long and really <laughs> so light reading. Yeah. <laughs> so and 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 it deals with questions that, you know, we we would consider hair splitting today. Sure. You know, uh But he really wanted to cover the whole oh, yeah. the yeah. whole the the uh Christian life. Right. Yes. Like uh, and and, yeah. and not leave something unturned if 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 it would come up into a confessional Yes. That Absolutely. the moral the, the confessor would be formed in such a way as to be able to give a response. Yeah. It's a, it, that, that work is, um, it, it doesn't really go beyond moral theology, but mm -hmm. it's more than, <laughs> it's moral theology, you know, broadly considered. So everything that might fit in the life of growth and grace is considered in, the, in nine volumes. You yeah. Know, all the sacraments and the graces that they convey and things like that. So it, yeah. Um, but but once again, his popular works are are quite accessible, and you know, look in the tan catalog. Look at the tan catalog, exactly. And I'd even say probably for most of our viewers and listeners, uh, the the work of Saint Alphonsus Liguori you're probably most familiar with is the Stations of the Cross. Yeah, 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 very and, very beautiful. And uh, that most parishes have the little booklet of it that you do on the Fridays in Lent, and yeah, you that's take right. your kids there, and then you find them, you know, go to the fish fry afterwards. But <laughs> but one of those beautiful refrains he has in there is that. Um, let me never offend you. Yeah. You know, I always love you. Uh, I forget the right now the phrase is escaping me, but it's, it's this beautiful refrain that goes throughout the stages of the cross of just like, you know, contemplate your savior, remember your savior. Yeah, He's yeah. doing this for you. Yeah, there's uh, that's one of the characteristics of of Saint Alphonsus is this unction, right? So you know, hearing he's the prince of moral theologians yeah. as you suggested, you know, that might suggest a kind of legalist approach to the spiritual life, but but he has a very tender devotion. You can see that in his Marian devotion particularly. Um, and and a great love as as indicated in that quote that you uh, gave at the beginning from JP2, right? A deep love for the poor. Um, uh, he always sought to serve in those places, even though he came from the upper classes, he always sought to serve um, the poorest of the poor, as we would say, you know, drawing from from Mother Teresa of Calcutta. He, he was very much a figure like that, very tenderhearted. One of the things I, I, when I was researching and looking at his life that I was struck by was that, yeah, coming from nobility to go and serve the poor, there's a quotation attributed to him where he said, I've never delivered a sermon where the 
you know, the, the, the least educated, simplest yeah, couldn't understand woman, it. I think, could yeah, understand couldn't understand <laughs> what I said. And because he loved the people so much, he wanted them to understand um, that he was, he had such a heart for missions that yep. he joined a diocesan order to serve in a missionary capacity. Yeah, that's right. And then he even starts another order to mm -hmm. go and to be that, you know, yeah. to teach the, 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 the poorest of the poor. The congregation of the Most Holy Redeemer. Yes. Yeah, commonly called the Redemptorists. Yep. <clears throat> and they're still me. with us today, right? The Redemptorists? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Still in many countries all over the world. Is that still their mission? Uh, yeah, yeah, they still they still do missions. Missions, right? okay, yeah. Um, and uh, preach missions, and they're kind of famous for, you know, having the, the crucifix in the belt, you know, because he, Alphonsus would would hold the crucifix aloft, you know, to remind people of the price of their redemption. Hmm. And uh, that's sort of the spirit of the group, but very much working among the poor. So missions, yes, and they still do parish missions in all kinds of places. You can find them doing parish missions in the US, but um, but largely uh, their inclination is, is to poorer places. One of the things, so the Redemptorists, uh, I read somewhere that he, even in the founding of the Redemptorists, there was he just had suffering there. It seemed like suffering accompanied him in his life. Oh yeah, and it was like there was yeah there was a confusion about something, and like they even broke up and they kicked him out or they, from being the head well, of the order. Well, oh yeah, and um, wanted to get into the political intrigue, but it just seemed like there was suffering in his own. Well, yeah, from the life. beginning, you know, his this isn't uncommon, especially in noble families, right? They they oppose the the entry of their sons or daughters mm. into religious life because they're losing everything. And uh, and I think he was the oldest. He was the eldest in his family, even though they didn't have much to pass on. They had yeah. they had the fallen name. on hard times. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so there's always resistance of that kind. Um, I, I think he originally wanted to be an oratorian. Okay, for Saint Philip Mary's. Yeah. Or, yeah. And uh, and he took a lot of those elements from the oratorians with him in leaving. Um, and so his father opposed that. He didn't want him doing that. And so, uh, you know, the idea is, well, he'll be a diocesan priest, but he, he has to leave. And yes, once again, he faces all kinds of trials, both uh, physical and spiritual, mm -hmm. you know, because once again, as we mentioned, suffering from scrupulosity. But, but as is commonly the case, you know, this happens with St. Francis of Assisi, you know, <laughs> yeah. being displaced as the founder of his own order. St. John of the Cross. Yes, yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Which, yeah, yeah. That's, that's pretty serious to be put in prison by your, yeah. your confreres. Your <laughs> um, so yeah, lots of, of suffering of that kind, but uh, lots of physical maladies. As a matter of fact, when he was named a bishop, uh, he tried to plead that he was physically incapable of doing it. Hmm. And um, and was probably not lying. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's good. <laughs> that's right. Because <laughs> that was important to him. That, that was important to him. He's a moral theologian. <laughs> but um, but you know, stuck it out for twelve or thirteen years as a bishop. But but when he was finished, he was finished. So he he resigned as a bishop, and the, of course those kinds. Were you allowed of things. to do that back then? Well, apparently oh, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. He, I'm sure he did all the way. And he way. went back to live with the Redemptorist, but but one. Uh, one of his biographers said he was uh, there. Was, he was a shell of a man by the time he hmm. retired. Right? He still had another twelve years or so, about the same period he had spent in the Epic episcopacy um, to live after. But but there there wasn't much left of him by the time yeah. the church was done with him as a bishop. So yeah. When what would you say for those uh, watching and listening? What's the connection between the moral life and the spiritual life? 
because he was such a great, as you mentioned, the, he has this, uh, this great treatise on moral theology, but it expands. It's, it's yeah. bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Because I think that sometimes, I think the temptation for good, faithful Catholic Christians is to say, I live a moral life. I am yep. not Hitler. Right? I'm not <laughs> as bad as that guy. Yeah. And that I think that that's good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, um, you know, the, the traditional assessment of, you know, the relationship between moral and spiritual um, in the church and very much in the spirit of St. Alphonsus is that the moral life is the foundation and preparation for the spiritual life. So it's it's ascetical and spiritual theology, right? So there, you, you have to set certain moral foundations uh, to make possible advance in the spiritual life. And without those, it represents a sine qua non, right? Without which you don't get advance in the spiritual life. So, and growth in the spiritual life is largely moral growth. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something we've kind of lost a bit you know, because we tend to think of uh, the spiritual life as holy, uh, a kind of personal relationship with God, uh, forgetting that God says specifically, right, that he who loves me obeys my commandments, right? So that the relationship itself depends upon uh, that demanding love that God has for us uh, to draw us more into his likeness, right, through moral perfection. So there's a tight association, which is never broken, Mm -hmm. right? You can't neglect the moral life and grow in the spiritual life. And it works the other way around, right? You'll you'll end up uh, failing in the moral life if you don't have a vital spiritual life, a life of prayer. So so St. Alphonsus observes and evaluates uh, the whole of this reality, this mystery in accord with the unity of those two dimensions, right? Which can never really be broken. Oh, that's a beautiful answer. I know that you're a master teacher of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So I looked up in the back of the Catechism Uh-oh. where St. Alphonsus, <laughs> if he was, if he's quoted, not all the saints are quoted, but, yeah. um, and he does have one quotation. One quotation. One quotation in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So I wanted to ask you, because I read it and it's like, oh, this is, a, this is a hard quote. So I'll put you in a tough spot. Okay, good. So this comes in the context of the fourth pillar of the Catechism yeah, on prayer. Crazy. <laughs> and uh, it talks about the three enlightening facts of faith about prayer, that it's always possible to pray. Prayer is a vital oh, yeah. necessity. Uh-huh. Uh, and then the prayer and the Christian life are inseparable. Uh-huh. And this is the quotation from St. Alphonsus. So if someone had to look him up, I wanted to, you to give some commentary, some gloss on this. Those who pray are certainly saved. Those who do not pray are certainly damned. Yeah. It seems harsh words to say to, to talk about damnation and hell. You wouldn't expect people don't always expect that in the catechism. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> in, the, in the church's teaching, it is in there. For you guys want to check, it is in there. But uh, if you could give a gloss on that for us, well, okay, um, th- that's a quote which is also credited to Saint Teresa of Avila. Okay, yeah, and she was she was a tough cookie. Yeah. Um, so did you steal the quote? Uh, he no, may well have. <laughs> moral. No, wait, wait, wait. What's happening? <laughs> no, I love it when the the saints kind of rhyme yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And and often these things, you know, we're not entirely sure, sure of their provenance. But yep. but um, so just to indicate, um, that's not only his sentiment, mm-hmm. right? It's yes. it's shared. Thank you. Um, and uh, and uh, as I. Indicated in our in our pre-broadcast conversation, uh, he means what he says. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you you can't uh, you can't cut off your relationship as we were just indicating, yeah. right? We can't cut off our relationship with God, which is uh, largely expressed through prayer, and uh, retain our place uh, in covenant with Him. Uh, so if if you're not praying, you're on your way to a fall, mm-hmm. uh, and you're not arming yourself to resist the temptations that will come your way. Uh, without prayer, we fail, uh, which is only to say, without grace, we cannot be saved, mm-hmm. right? And so we need to be earnest about asking, seeking, and knocking, as our Lord says. Uh, if if we don't ask, seek, and knock, we will not receive, and failing to receive, we will not be saved by the grace we would otherwise have received. Um, so it's a simple categorical, and it's good when people uh, state it that baldly, mm-hmm because it makes it very clear, if you don't retain a vital interior life, you will fail. There's a, there's a, a dreadful scene painted uh, by uh, Dom Chotard in his Soul of the Apostolate, where he talks about, uh, specifically he's talking about priests, but it applies to everyone, but he talks about dissipation in, in the spiritual life and when one begins to surrender certain prayers. And you can almost see the, you know, um, the life of a man draining out through a toe or something like that. Like wow. the toe's yeah. been torn off and all the sand is running out from the inside. And that that slow pattern of degradation, once you begin to stop praying, uh, your moral commitments begin to slide. And it's a it's a sad picture, right? But it's, you know, we all have that experience too. You know, when we fail to pray, things just don't go as well. The ultimate expression of that is is can be reprobation, you know, if we yeah if we give up the life of prayer or the spiritual life altogether. The great hope though, is that those who pray will be saved. Yes, that's right. Gonna, <laughs> that's <laughs> the, the converse, <laughs> yes. Is that if we do pray, if we do seek our Lord's <laughs> grace in our lives. And one of, the, one of the great pious practices that mm-hmm. uh, when I was reading about that, uh, he encouraged the lay people, la- laity and, and everybody in the, in the spiritual life to do was to make uh, frequent visits to the Blessed Sacrament. Yeah, yeah. And I think just living in this context, when we're recording this, we're in the middle of a Eucharistic revival in the United States of America, and the bishops are encouraging us to focus our attention on the great gift the Eucharist is. Yeah, yeah. Um, Obviously, you know, as a devout uh, priest, a great champion of the Blessed Sacrament and uh, and adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, um, it's at the center of of the missions preached by the Redemptorists. Um, and, uh, you know, a, an important facet in, in his spiritual life, no doubt about it. Sounds like he was the, the meat and the potatoes, the Eucharist. <laughs> and then when you sin, go and receive our Lord's mercy and yeah. confession. And Yeah, absolutely. And don't forget the Blessed Mother. And the Blessed Mother, yes. Yeah. Because Mary was part of his name even, wasn't Yes, yeah. yes. And, uh, and the Redemptorists have a particular devotion, um, to, uh, Our Lady of Perpetual Help. And um, and the primary, it's a Byzantine icon, and the primary icon is in their church in Rome, and so it's a facet of of the Redemptorist life and their particular uh, way of approaching Marian devotion. So, is that the image of where Jesus is running to Mary and his sandals falling yeah, off? Yeah, his sandal is, and also, but also the implements of his uh, passion are there mm. as well. So you know the 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 our later perpetual help helping our Lord, and then also offering through that gaze outward to help us as well. 
I, I uh, one of the places where I lived for quite a while there in in the cathedral. It's a, this is Rapid City, South Dakota. There's a huge icon of Our Lady of Perpetual Help. The the cathedral is called Our Lady of Perpetual Help up over the the main altar, and it's it's quite moving. And I've spent a lot of time <laughs> in front of that image. In front of that image, it, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, Sean, for what can someone today? What do you want to say about Saint Alphonsus, or what do you want to tell someone you know listening or watching today of about Saint Alphonsus? Besides it being this the Saint Day that of which you were born, yeah, that's right, so good devotion, yeah. What What do you think would be helpful for like? Why is he relevant to us today? Well, uh, he's uh, a very important figure for our own day for exactly the reasons we've described. Right? Um, he was a um, he was the sort of person who was able uh, through great learning, but also you know a, a very deaf. Um, appraisal of the difficulties of human life to provide moral answers to difficult questions uh, and in the midst of controversy mm. at that particular time in the history of the church. And we're facing similar controversies in our own time. Um, so I think it would be terrific for us to, um, you know, make greater use of uh, his moral theology um, as a tried and true expression of once again, how to avoid the extremes of laxity and rigorism, mm -hmm. right? And especially in the confessional, um, he's a great teacher for confessors, but also he's a great pastoral uh, guide for those who go to confession. And, uh, and all of us need to do that more, right? Especially yes. in a year yes. of Eucharistic revival. Yes. One of the failures of uh, Jansenism was that um, they discourage frequent Holy Communions, hmm. right? And St. Alphonsus specifically um, encouraged people to go more often and gave them the confidence in God's mercy to do so, but also with that clear um, teaching about the importance of moral rectitude and, and growing closer to our Lord in his service and love for him and those he's given us to love so that we can be better uh, receptacles of, the, of that great gift. So I, I think he's a he's an apt um, saint for our time. Well, thank you for that exhortation. Thank you for joining me today in the conversation. You bet. You bet. Thank you as well. You can hear this conversation on form, but you can also hear it on a podcast, wherever you find your podcast. And we have a whole series of Catholic saints where we talk about the heroes and heroines that the Lord has given us in the church, that you are also called to be a saint. Thank you for joining us and God bless. Thank you for being a dedicated listener to the Catholic Saints podcast. Your support truly uplifts us. For those seeking additional thought-provoking content, go to formed.org. It's a platform brimming with resources, including insightful videos that align seamlessly with our podcast's themes. If you're finding value in our podcast, please consider taking a moment to leave us a review. Your feedback serves as a cornerstone for our growth and outreach.